The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 349 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, your host. I am a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is decision makers, decision making and dementia. Dementia is the name for a group of problems, health problems, brain problems with thinking and social abilities that are severe enough to interfere with daily functioning, daily life. Dementia indicates problems with brain functions such as memory loss, impaired judgment and failing language ability. Dementia impairs decision making, an effect which may interfere with the person's daily activities such as paying bills. It may um, get the person lost while driving or it may result in behavior that's harmful or dangerous for the person or for others. Dementia's causes include Alzheimer's disease, the most common cause of dementia, which the type which gets worse over time. Um, causes include strokes and other problems with blood vessels in the brain. Traumatic brain injury is experienced by hockey and football players and soldiers. It's caused by alcohol or drugs of abuse. It's caused by Parkinson's disease, which eventually leads to dementia symptoms. And it's also caused by brain infections, such as meningitis. All of which is why our topic, decision makers, decision making and dementia, is so important to family caregivers and their family members. To discuss it, our guests are Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Now, Michael is a medical professor ethicist and one of Canada's best-known geriatricians. He's the Medical Program Director of Palliative Care at Baycrest Health Sciences and a Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's published several books, including Late Stage Dementia, Promoting Comfort, Compassion and Care, Moments That Matter, Cases in Ethical Elder Care, and Parenting Your Parents. His work to advance the understanding of aging, ethics, and end-of-life care is valued by public and professional audiences. Born in the United States, his education and training experiences span the United States, Scotland, Israel, and Canada. Now, Susan is Vice President for Advocacy at CARP, C-A-R-P, the national non-partisan, non-profit organization committed to advocating for social change that will bring financial security, equitable access to health care and freedom from discrimination for all Canadians as they age. Under her leadership, 
CARB advocacy has helped to shape the public discourse on pension reform, investor protection, mandatory retirement, workplace age discrimination, home care, age-friendly cities, and driving for seniors. Increasingly, CARP has become a trusted source of public policy input at all levels of government and for the media. And in 2012, Susan was named one of the Hill Times, a newspaper's top 100 lobbyists. So, welcome to the show, Michael and Susan. Thank you for having us. Right. Now, let me start with Michael. First of all, please tell us more about your work as a specialist geriatrician. Michael? Well, as a geriatrician, I look after virtually exclusively older people. In fact, the average age of my patient population is probably mid-80s, and I have many in the 90s, uh, some who are over 100, but it's usually 80, 80 plus, uh, and I work in a number of venues. My primary geriatric practice is ambulatory. I've changed over the years from different kinds of practice. So mostly I see patients in the office. It's a clinic at Baycrest. It's a teaching clinic, which means I always have some kind of trainee with me, a medical student, a medical resident at various levels of training. And in the last, I would say, decade, the vast majority of patients refer to me, whatever else they have, dementia or cognitive impairment of one degree or another is often the basis of the referral. I still see people who have just typical complex geriatric problems without dementia, but more and more because my interests have moved that way, many have dementia. The other part of my practice is in palliative care, and that's an inpatient unit at Baycrest. I'm the medical program director, which is the administrative supervisor. I'm involved with teaching as well and consultations. And a good part of the population there has uh, moved from just cancer, which used to be the primary, to a mixture of non-cancer conditions, including end-of-life and late-stage dementia. Right. Susan, please tell us about your work with CARP. And first off, please explain to us what the name CARP, C-A-R-P, actually means. Susan? Well, thank you. I'm pleased to do so. Um, CARP stands for Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Now, we're very much like AARP in the United States, but we're minuscule by comparison in size. And I often say that we use the acronym instead of the full name because so many of our members can't afford to retire. And, and I find that that actually underlines some of the work that we have to do. Uh, we do focus, as you've mentioned, on the three main categories that affect our quality of life as we age, our financial security, retirement security, pensions, and so on, our access to health care. And, and as we age, the dealing with chronic care, issues of dementia, issues of caregiving, end-of-life care, of course, and uh, the, the issues there become much more prominent uh, as we age. And, of course, the issue of rights, that includes the right to keep your driver's license, the right to keep working, to be free from elder abuse, all of these kinds of issues that sort of weigh on us, that, that particularly affect us as we age. And a lot of what we do is uh, we, we 
work with issue experts. We don't pretend to be experts, but rather reflect the position of the average Canadian who's confronting these challenges as they age and find that many times the system has made presumptions about what they should be doing. Um, I'm glad to be on, on the show with Dr. Gordon because there are few and far between specialists, ger- geriatricians, available for Canada's aging population. It, can, it becomes a, a major concern for us as we start to uh, have more and more of these issues come forward. What right. I'm finding that's important, however, is that our members are, are prepared to start dealing with these issues one by one and exercise their votes to get them changed. Right. Now, Michael, in your medical work, and you've already said a lot, quite a lot about this, what are the forms, forms of dementia you most commonly seen, and but what is the route in the healthcare system by which these particular sorts of patients reach you? Michael? Yeah, the vast majority of people in North America, uh, dementia is usually a, a mixed condition. In other words, it's a mixture pathology-wise of Alzheimer's disease, which is called a neurodegenerative. That means the cells start breaking down, and blood vessel disease, so-called vascular disease. And that's because if you live long enough and you live in North America, there's a pretty good chance you're going to develop some kind of vascular risk factor, blood pressure, diabetes, uh, hyperlipidemia, that's cholesterol, whether you were a smoker for some years, uh, and the lack of uh, physical activity, all of which together and diabetes lead to blood vessel disease. That, along with neurodegeneration, is the most common cause of dementia in the population I see in this part of the world. Every now and then, you know, somebody may come who has late-stage Parkinson's that may, not all, but may lead to dementia. And, of course, there are people who have done other things. I've had over the years, it's interesting, very prominent people in business who developed alcoholic dementia because their world, which was a high-end business world, CEO world, included a lot of alcohol. And I remember one gentleman when I sort of discussed what I thought was going on, he said, but I only drank the finest wines. And I explained to him the alcohol and the wine doesn't really care uh, in which bottle it's in. So uh, that's the main. I mean, I don't see people in my practice, let's say, with recurrent head injuries, although sometimes that comes usually uh, from a motor vehicle accident or something. Right. Now, Susan, in the work of CARP, how much concern do you see or experience about dementia and how are is the concern or are the concerns expressed? Susan? That we do poll our members from time to time on the different issues that we cover. And on the issue of dementia, the greatest concern is that, first of all, it reaches into every family. Two-thirds of our members have either personal experience of dementia in someone very, very close to them or somebody they know well. And so the issue of dementia normally affects the estimated 750,000 people diagnosed with it. It also affects all of the, you know, a number in their families. So there are uh, millions of Canadians who are personally affected by the issue of dementia. When we ask them how well they think, you know, the system is prepared to deal with it, whether by way of treatment or support for their family members, they say not at all. They feel that our public systems have no strategy, and 
indeed we're one of the G8 countries, one of the few G8 countries that doesn't have a national dementia strategy at all, um, and they don't see any progress on the horizon. So that the concern is not only that they see it coming, they see it among their family and friends, but they also fear that the public system is not preparing itself to deal with the, a growing concern. So many of these people, you know, uh, when they realize that they need to find some help in uh, coping with somebody in their family that has uh, the disease, they really don't know where to turn, and they don't feel that they have a lot of hope that they will find it readily. Um, Nobody expects that there is a cure in the near future, but they do need to have some kind of supporting mechanism to help them get through. That's very clear. Just a very quick word for both of you. What what it sounds to me as though we're looking for is care at this stage in that broader sense of support for a community that's concerned, support for the people who are living longer and therefore experiencing all these things, and care in the sense of support for the families who are concerned, worried, and faced with the challenges of supporting a family member or maybe more than one family member with this problem. Now, on that point, we're going to take the break. This is where I always say that we have to pay the rent, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you looking to get unstuck from the rut that has seemingly become your life? Move ahead by tuning in to Psychopedia, life principles to help you get unstuck. Host Dr. Jeffrey Shaw and his guests will help with the encouragement you need to make that forward move. Guests include therapists, financial advisors, and more, as well as shared stories of hope from the listening audience. Psychopedia, life principles to help you get unstuck, can be heard live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Our topic is decision makers, decision making and dementia. Now, let's talk about roles and responsibilities of decision makers involved in dementia. Now, first of all, Mike, please, as decision makers involved with dementia, what are the roles and responsibilities of specialist physicians? In other words, people like you. Michael, what are they? I think it depends which specialty, where you are. Um, I mean, one of the issues that often comes up is when people say we don't have a national strategy. That's because we don't have a national health service. We have 10 provincial healthcare systems, like 10 HMOs. And I travel a lot around the world and stuff. And I just want to say that with all our deficiencies, we do not a bad job considering the challenges. But as a physician in an academic setting, because that's where I work, and involved in um, levels of government from local to provincial to national and various committees, what I try to do is translate what I see in my immediate office practice. In other words, what I see in the front line, the issues related to individual patients and their families, and then help advise those who are responsible for trying to develop policies, programs, processes to make sure that those on the front line try to receive the best that's currently available. And as was mentioned earlier, right now in the terms of the usual medical model of treatments, we haven't moved for 15 years. There are no major treatments on the horizon, and what there are are certainly not curative. But as an example, when those drugs first came out, I happened to be involved with the drug benefit program in Ontario, and it was through various um, lobbying, including from CARP and others, plus the work of the committee that put through the first acceptance of this class of drugs, Aricepin, Rivastigmine, and those that could be used in the public system. So all of us who are involved one way or the other use our positions either in the clinical setting alone or in the clinical micro and macro systems to try to help mold the system to serve those that we care for. Right. Now, Susan, as decision makers involved with dementia, what are the roles and responsibilities of families and family caregivers? Susan? Well, the biggest concern for family and family caregivers is what to do next. Unlike somebody who has, say, a heart condition, um, it is possible for the decision makers or the family to have the person who has the problem cooperate with them to, you know, get past their problem. You know, you mustn't rush, sit still, uh, don't try those stairs, that kind of thing. You have someone who's relatively, you know, cooperative, part of uh, the solution. Dealing with dementia, first of all, there's the fear and the unknown and the fact that the person you love is disappearing in front of your eyes. And many people, most people I would warrant, are not really able to deal with that. 
um, they feel, you know, in addition to not knowing how the disease should be handled or presented, they have a huge amount of guilt that comes through at this time. And so part of the problem is that family members have to understand and they need to get uh, educated as quickly as possible. They need to decide on what it is that they're trying to do. Are they just trying to keep the person safe? Are they trying to bring them back to what they were before? And, and I think that that's where we need a great deal more support and training for families who are involved with somebody who, who needs their help in this way. Right. Michael, as decision makers involved with dementia, I'm asking you about the mental health care system. What are its roles and responsibilities for making decisions? Michael? Yeah, I actually avoid dividing the healthcare system into segments that are called things like mental health. With dementia, the people who are involved in care and decision-making cross all the fields of medicine. Geri- I mean, I have a bias. I'm a geriatrician. I think we do the best job. I'm joking. Neurologist. <laughs> depends where you are, who's available, and who's interested. Not every neurologist, for example, has a particular interest or expertise in dementia. Not every psychiatrist. And some geriatricians find it less challenging than other conditions. So it really isn't a matter of which system, because all of the systems interface and we all depend on each other. When I have a person with dementia that I'm seeing, I will use a neurologist if there's a specific issue I want addressed that I don't know enough about. But for the basic principles of decision-making, there are many of us, including nowadays, some very well-trained family physicians who do extra training in care of the elderly who do a marvelous job. So there are many people involved, and it isn't limited to one component of the healthcare system, such as the mental health system. Now, what that then, I should have rephrased, I should rephrase the question then that you've just answered to say the healthcare system. Yes. bringing in all the people, all the yes. specialists, family well, doctors you've been talking the, about. The main, uh, I think the main issue is with the care of the older person with dementia or some degree of cognitive impairment, it's truly a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary system that's required to meet the needs. So it's medical, non-medical, social service, nursing, therapy, OT, PT, ethics, because the questions that come up are complex. And none of us have all the expertise and answers, but together we can provide a lot. Got it. Susan, again, same sort of question. As decision makers involved with dementia, what are the roles and responsibilities of the criminal justice system or systems? Susan? Well, first of all, let me uh, agree with uh, Dr. Gordon on the point that the entire healthcare system has to be treated as a seamless whole because, as we say in one of our papers, there is only one patient. And for us to try to navigate the healthcare system and go to its different constituent parts, it's, it's quite a challenge. So it's very important for us to see that the system works cooperatively to deal with uh, our issues from one part of the specialist system to another part. The same goes for the criminal justice system. Them. And the same thing that, that they have to have, which is to, to be 
in that case, you know, when we ask the healthcare system to be patient-centered, we need the criminal justice system to step into the place where people who have dementia now live. It does mean that a, the person who had all kinds of personal responsibilities and discipline before the onset of the disease is now missing all of that. And at what point does the justice system remove responsibility from the person, that issue of capacity becomes a critical deciding point. And most people, uh, you know, in the general public have no idea. Indeed, I wonder if the criminal justice system itself has a good idea as to what the dividing point is. And it, this also starts to extend to the civil law system as well, when people are trying to make decisions. Are they able to contract on their own behalf? Are they able to, uh, you know, spend or sell their property and so on? At what point does the decision maker, that is the family, have to be uh, substituting their decision? So that whole issue when we're dealing with competency, that is mental competency, and when you lose the right to to one, be responsible for your action in the criminal justice system, and to be able to decide in the civil system is a real critical issue for a lot of families. And oftentimes, because that demarcation is so vague, other things step in. You know, personality uh, disorders, I guess, get exacerbated, and, you know, you get into a terrible time of argument, then that actually brings you into the criminal justice system at many times. Now, just to go a little bit further than that, when people, for example, are wander on the highway, as happens sadly from time to time, and either are badly injured or killed as a result of being run down on the highway, where does the justice system fit into that picture, if at all? And if it doesn't fit in, what, who and how is the prevention to be applied? Well, that just happened uh, recently. Again, it was not the first time, and sadly, I suspect it won't be the last time. The question, you know, at the guilt, you know, the family was just riddled with guilt, uh, thinking how could we have prevented this? Um, the man who struck the woman on the very busy 400 series highway is no doubt, you know, traumatized by the event as well. And, uh, you know, everybody is thinking, what could I have done instead of what I, I did or did not do? And so there are a number of creative ideas. Some people have come up with technology, you know, alarms and, and all the rest. Um, but at the end of the day, when uh, this kind of thing happens, where does the responsibility lie? Do you have a strict liability to prevent a person with dementia from harming him or herself and, and, and somebody else? And when does that liability spring forth? Yeah. I, I don't have an answer to that. It's one of the things we're going to have to grapple with. Let me go back to Michael for a moment. That that question of capacity, um, I don't. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know the full <clears throat> implications of this. But often I read that physicians like you, specialists, are called upon to make decisions about capacity. Please just say a quick word about the yeah. physician. The way First of all, the that. important thing is to remember that capacity is not all or nothing. It's domain-specific, meaning I may be perfectly capable to decide what I want for breakfast, 
but not decide on how to run my financial portfolio. So whenever we talk about capacity, and this is very important, and not everybody's aware of it, we have to say, well, what are they being asked to decide about? And it may be that they could have quite a significant degree of dementia and still be able to make decisions about important things in their life. Or they may have what you might call a mild or early degree of dementia and not be able. And that came up in uh, the, uh, the, 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 the politicians, such as President Reagan, where people said, you know that at some point while he was president, he probably had early dementia. He said, well, who made the decisions? Some people said Nancy, right? Yeah. So the thing is, it depends what you're being asked to do, and there isn't a test that says all or nothing. And it may vary even in a given person at a given time of day or different time of week or depending on how the challenge is presented to them and what other things go into the decision-making process. Right. In other words, both comment to both of you this is no simple matter and evolving any kind of policy around it has got to take into account things that susan said and things that you just said michael now on that point we'll, we'll escape from that question by taking the break um this is dr gordon asley my guests are dr michael gordon and susan eng you're listening to family caregivers unite on the voice america variety and empowerment channels cjmp 90.1 fm community radio and sharing the burden.ca please Stay with us. We're coming back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Question, what's working and what's not working in your life? Though we resolve each year to do things differently and we want what's great for our businesses, our relationships, our health, and more, we don't always know where to turn when life gets tough. That's where Leading Life Large with host Rob Braun comes in. Our show challenges you to reevaluate where you are and keep pushing your way to the success you desire. If you want it bad enough, we can help you turn your life around. Leading Life Large airs Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. How do you achieve balance in your life? Is it when everything runs in perfect alignment with each other? time, money, and life? You can keep everything in nearly perfect balance. Listen for Be Mighty with K.D. Marley, which is made up of two people, K. Mar and D. Lee. The hosts have worked with small business owners to find the best and most systematic way of tracking both time and money in order to achieve work-life balance to their advantage. The show can help you, too. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Our topic is decision makers, decision making and dementia. Now, both of you, let's talk about the challenges that confront decision makers involved with dementia in fulfilling their roles and responsibilities. And yes, we have already mentioned a lot of those challenges, but I want to go into some more greater detail. Starting with you, Michael, please. What are the most challenging of the challenges that confront specialist physicians involved with dementia in fulfilling, fulfilling their roles, that is the physician's roles and responsibilities as decision makers? Um, of the ones that come up, because there are a number, but recurrent, uh, let's say in the office practice or in the institutional practice, I would say one of the biggest challenges is the issue related to driving. And that is because driving itself is a complicated issue. Uh, people get wed to their cars early on in life. It has a great deal of symbolism besides the utility. The law that exists is pretty prescriptive in terms of what the role of a doctor is. Uh, families can be either very reluctant or very eager to change the driving status of their uh, let's say, parent, depending on what they've experienced and observed. Um, and it often happens that the specialist, like myself, <clears throat> has the issue punted to them because the family doctor, for various reasons, doesn't either want to get involved or doesn't really have the wherewithal to get involved. And therefore, we are often, uh, in a sense, the, in quotes, bad guy, with guy being generic, since so many geriatricians <laughs> are women. And that's a difficult process because the standard for assessment is not an easy one. I mean, right now the gold standard is an on-road drive, but even that is not easy to arrange, and it's not without uh, cost. So there are a number of very, very committed groups, including in Ontario, trying to find a better algorithm to determine, for example, how one decides whether somebody's a safe driver or not and what the alternatives might be. So that's the, the big, big one. The next big, big one is when somebody is no longer able to be either looked after or look after themselves in their own home, but doesn't either understand that and doesn't want to move, and the family is in a position of struggling how to bridge the gap and make the transition from what is the home to what may be an alternative venue for where they live. I would say those are the two biggest on the ambulatory, in other words, people in the community, challenges that come to me. Right. Now, Susan, Michael has identified challenges for specialists like him, and, but I'm asking you about challenges uh, that confront families and family caregivers, and he, Michael, has mentioned in both of those instances that families and family caregivers are involved. So what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges for families and family caregivers involved with dementia? Susan? Well, in addition to the concerns that Michael has mentioned, there is also the fact that the families quite often are completely ignorant about the disease and what resources are available or what they should do next. Uh, they're in no position to, to start. And then at the same time as they're trying to grapple with what might or might not be happening with their, uh, their, their father, uh, you know, is he just being difficult or is something actually, you know, is there actually a disease happening here? On top of that, they have the issue of, uh, of stigma. 
they don't want to let anybody else know that this is happening. There's a certain amount of shame, a lack of acceptance. Uh, their father might be extremely loud, for example, in the restaurant and suddenly becomes a matter of embarrassment because the general population out there has no idea how to deal with somebody who may be, uh, who may have those, uh, that kind of presentation. And finally, when they're dealing with the person, him or herself, you know, they can't get them to cooperate. You know, even children, you can get them to cooperate at some point, but when you're dealing with somebody who's not themselves, then they're not in a position to cooperate with you. You have to find a way to get them to safety or get them to stop doing something they shouldn't be doing uh, without, you know, engaging in uh, inappropriate, you know, physicality or restraint and so on. And so when it comes to the healthcare system and long-term care and so on, there is all this, all these awful stories, all these awful stories of chemical restraints and people being, uh, you know, doors shut so that they're, they're not intrusive and so on. It's because the system itself is not very good at dealing with people with dementia. So we can't really ask even more than that of uh, families. But nonetheless, we have to find some kind of generalized learning uh, community-based support so that they can actually help their loved ones stay at home much longer than they are today. I'm going to take a bit of a countervailing position. In terms of available education for the public, it's everywhere. Somebody who is illiterate, perhaps, cannot find it, but it is everywhere. The Alzheimer's societies do a marvelous job. Community centers do a marvelous job. Somebody has to want not to know in order not to know because the information's there. There are groups that are there. And the second part in terms of institution, I consult for a number of institutions besides my own, and I can say that for the most part, things have changed. Over the last, I'll say, two decades, the commitment to caring for people with dementia is phenomenal. And although I know newspapers, some in particular, love to tell stories, I am willing to say that the vast majority of caregivers in the long-term care system are not only well-educated, but want to take care of people well, including those with dementia. And I'll tell you, I consult for what it ends up being a total of maybe 1,500 to 2,000 individuals in institutions in which dementia is part of the, their repertoire. Right. So I'm now, not as I'm, negative about it. Okay, fair, fair comment. Now, I just want to ask you briefly the question, though, about the healthcare system as a whole. Uh, what are its challenges in fulfilling its roles? And Susan mentioned the problem in pointed out in the newspaper of over-medication of some people who are confined to facilities. Just, just outline for us the, the challenges there. Well, first of all, it's very complex because you could always find a case and an issue. Most of us who work in the system, first of all, there are regulations that govern how we're supposed to do things. There's been a phenomenal evolution in our understanding of how the different interventions might be used in dealing with the various components that affect people with dementia. The vast majority of people with dementia are not in institutions. They are actually in their homes. Those that end up in institutions are there because usually they have serious behavioral problems. 
that are associated with some people with dementia and or their families are not able to look after them or any combination thereof. Therefore, as I often say, we have a selected group, an ultrafiltrate of people with substantial problems. I can remember when we used to have people in my own long-term care facility who nowadays would not even qualify for getting into long care because they needed sort of room and board and they had a few problems. Now you have to be quite severe in order to get into long-term care because of dementia. Right. Susan, you talked about the criminal justice system and the challenges there. What are the most challenging of those challenges in the sense of what do you think the criminal justice system needs to do more and better in fulfilling its role and responsibility as a decision-making system? Susan? Well, we like to think that um, people who have dementia are going to be kept well away from the criminal justice system as much as possible. And unfortunately, the, the situations that have been reported in the media, and frankly, I'm not unaware of what happens in nursing homes. I know very well that there is a, a great deal of learning that has taken place, but it hasn't been enough, and the resources have not been sufficiently allocated to deal with what is inherently a much more uh, difficult population population than the funding envelopes were meant to take care of. And so people who want to do good haven't got the resources to do so. And so very few of the nursing homes have, for example, a psychiatrist on staff. Some of them do. Uh, they don't have the specialist people who are at the front lines who have to deal with this very difficult population. And you're quite right. Most people are staying at home because they, they're not allowed onto the wait list. Only the most severe cases are getting through. And so when they are in these homes together, things have happened between them. And so one of the growing concerns has been resident-on-resident resident violence. Um, not intentional, but uh, indeed recently the criminal justice system has felt it necessary to charge one of these people with a, a criminal charge after somebody else was killed. So the, the question becomes... Is that really the right intervention? Is there something between, you know, involving the criminal justice system, which after all requires a certain amount of intent and capacity to form that intent to some kind of neglect systemically or by the staff, or is this one of those things that is just going to be happening and nobody is responsible? So I think that the justice system has to evolve a little bit, to be a little bit more flexible, to make maybe not be called in and that the civil responsibility or that, that liability system actually has to expand and be much more nuanced to be able to deal with these uh, new positions which are neither black nor white. Could you just say a little bit more about what you mean by the civil justice system in the context that you've just, just been talking Well, in that case, we're talking about responsibility. Um, were you neglectful? Was there something you could have done? Should there be a law that requires a strict liability that in every situation like this you are obliged to take the following actions, some predetermined, of course, you know, the complexities of each person is going to make such uh, proscriptive regulation almost impossible. But should there be? Should we ask? Is there something we must all do in all such cases as a bare minimum? Is there some responsibility? Is there some minimum staffing level, the minimum staffing tr 
training? Uh, what is it that we can do as a system that will uh, reduce the likelihood of having these tragic events rather than wait until it happens and then bring in the criminal justice system? Right. Good. Prevention. Exactly. Now, okay, um, we've reached the point uh, on that particular discussion where we need to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adelaide, my guests are Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Ng. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Tune in every week for the Wellness Lounge, a step further with host Desiree Watson. Our program empowers you to incorporate a wellness lifestyle into your life, supported by a diverse selection of guests, including physicians, athletes, and education and government professionals, while helping you realize the connection between mind, body, and spirit. You'll achieve a personal edge in injury avoidance, stress management, and personal development. The Wellness Lounge, a step further, airs Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Question, what's working and what's not working in your life? Though we resolve each year to do things differently and we want what's great for our businesses, our relationships, our health, and more, we don't always know where to turn when life gets tough. That's where Leading Life Large with host Rob Braun comes in. Our show challenges you to reevaluate where you are and keep pushing your way to the success you desire. If you want it bad enough, we can help you turn your life around. Leading Life Large airs Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Our topic is decision makers, decision making and dementia. Now, both of you, let's talk about the things you would like to see done to promote what I call fair and reasonable decision making relating to dementia. Um, first of all, Michael, what would you like to see done to promote fair and reasonable decision making um, in whatever way you want to define fair and reasonable? Michael? I would say looking at the perspective I have, which is about 40 years in the field, um, and I've watched it evolve enormously. And because I'm an academic, my focus has been on the education of medical trainees. And there's no question that we've gone from almost no exposure, interest, and development of expertise 
to greater exposure. You might say not as much as we'd like, but that's because everybody wants a piece of the action. Greater exposure, more people interested, more sophisticated training programs, and a wider net into who should be exposed. So, for example, I was just in Montreal giving a talk, and I spoke to a colleague of mine at the Jewish General Hospital. In their hospital, it is now mandatory for orthopedic residents to have a month of geriatrics. Now, that's something I used to wish for because I used to do a lot of orthopedic consultations on old people who broke hips. And then the orthopods, they did their thing. They fixed the hips, but they left it to somebody else to deal with the rest. So they decided that everybody should know enough about the issues and challenges of aging, including dementia, so that every, ideally every physician will have a modicum of, of workable knowledge to deal with the issues, to know when to recognize the issues. So that's one part, because that's the area of my particular interest, is medical training. I could expand that to say nursing training. Now that's happened as well. And we can expand it to say all healthcare professionals. So at least we have the infrastructure within the healthcare system of people who understand, are knowledgeable, who are sensitive. And then I will also move it to my other area of particular interest, which is ethics and end of life, so that there is a continuum that addresses issues not just from the clinical point of view, but from the ethical implications, and because nobody's immortal and people with dementia often do not have the proper care system built into their end of life, that should be part of the comprehensive system that I envisage. Good. Now, Susan, again, you please interpret fair and reasonable reasonable decision-making in your own terms, but the question is, what more would you like to see done to promote that decision-making relating to dementia? Susan? Well, I think the most... Uh the greatest concern is for people who have various stages of dementia and the question of informed consent about what should happen next in their lives, what kind of treatment, how they would like to be treated, etc. There is an opportunity when people have a certain amount of capacity, as Dr. Gordon says, in some contexts and not others, that they be allowed to make those decisions and that nuance is going to be difficult but in order to be fair to them, we can't immediately infantilize them the minute there's a diagnosis of any kind of mental incapacity. Um, we need to be much more nuanced in how they are treated, uh, how the decision-making can be made to be safe. Uh, and not be too judgmental about their now inability to learn from making mistakes. And so I think that there's an opportunity here, and, and uh, I, I disagree that there is generalized knowledge about what, what dementia is and how it presents and what you can do on the day-to-day. You'd be shocked and appalled at how... Uh, resolutely unaware of things they don't need to know. Most people are. And so when it comes time that they have to face it in their own families, they may not know exactly where to go to get information, and so they don't have a starting point. So systemically, we do have to be appreciative of the fact that, yeah, people present with mental incapacity at different stages to different degrees, but uh, and, uh, underscoring our relationship with them has to be the process of informed consent. Right. Michael, different question now. 
and it's going to be for both of you. What is your message for family caregivers concerned about their family members that the family members may be starting with dementia? What's your message for the family caregivers? Well, the message is there is information available. It's readily available if you know where to go, and it isn't hard to know. If you're computer literate, it's about three clicks. If you're not sure where to go besides your family physician who may or may not be interested, there are community services that can provide it. There are libraries that can provide it. And there is always the Alzheimer's Society, which exists in almost every community in Ontario, a branch that you can go to and say, what's going on here? How do I get information? It's readily there. All you have have to do is ask. Now, if you're not capable of asking, that's another question. But most people who suspect there's something going on should be able to find somebody who they can ask and say, I need help. And then that person can help them get the proper assessment and help frame so that they can move on with the, the, the challenge that they will have. Right. Susan, same question. What is your message for family caregivers concerned about their family members who may be starting down the road with dementia? You know, I must say that for people who have been living this life from the point of view of advisors and consultants, you're going to know, you're going to, you have been living in this atmosphere. It's all, all, all around you because you can see it. But, you know, there's a program that the government has just announced that it's going to introduce for the first time via the Alzheimer's Society something called Dementia Friends, which was invented in Japan, adopted and used only for a year so far in the UK and not yet here in Canada, which is uh, attempting to remove the stigma around dementia in the broader community to bring communities in before they need to be involved in the care of somebody with dementia to start reducing the stigma, to generalize the information sharing, etc. There is a need for that. It is starting to be uh, put in place, but it didn't exist until they started to put money behind bringing it forward. Now, in many cases, people have the wits to start looking about it, but I, I, I just feel that uh, when you deal with people out here who haven't had to deal with it before, they need a starting point. And as you say, some doctors are not prepared to spend the time to, to bring the family along. And so that really is a big challenge for people like our members who are you know, grappling with any number of issues, and this is one that has a certain amount of historic you know, social stigma, fear, fear for themselves. Is this something that's genetic? Uh, and, and the early onset of the disease presents with difficult behavior. And is this just a manifestation of all of the family anger that has now festered? Uh, or is it a disease? You know, people don't know, and they make a lot of mistakes in, in the early parts, creating a great deal of grief that actually interferes with their ability to go and get help and to recognize what's going on. So it is not, it's not a trivial situation, as we all appreciate, I'm sure, but it is something that uh, people are prepared to learn, to prepare to be part of the solution. And I think that the system is ready to get out there and help them. It's not absolutely ready yet, but it's getting there. Just a very quick question to you, Michael, very quick. Uh, Are people, when they see their respected elders, 
having trouble with memory or doing slightly strange or unusual things, do they have any kind of reluctance to voice to themselves the possibility of dementia? Michael? Yes. yes. And I would say that in the early stages, it's a, a, it's a mixture of hope versus fear. <laughs> and yes. that you often attribute, and part of it is not erroneous, attribute to mild lapses in memory and recall and making errors in the first scrape of the car as just comes with the territory of aging. Part of that may be so, but most families, after it's been going for a while and they see that it's repeated and recurrent and becoming more severe, usually are aware some, something's wrong. Where they go to for the next step depends. I don't know exactly because I get the newsletter from CARP and I don't remember everything, but CARP can be a very good resource if you have the articles that say, if you see this, I know that I write for Solutions Magazine. There are lots of articles on dementia. And right. there are so many ways of getting people who are concerned aware that there's something that they have to look into. And I think all of us collectively that have anything to do with public policy, media, whatever programs are developed, can be part of families' understanding when they have to find proper help. And I think that feeds back into what Susan was saying, and I think there's another large topic for discussion there. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this very important episode. I want to say thank you to Michael and Susan for being so open with us about the difficulties. And I also want to wish you both extraordinary success in the work you're doing because it's people like you who are bringing about the changes that we're seeing occurring maybe they've not gone far enough but the, certainly the changes are occurring so that's good news i want to say thank you to our listeners we'd like to hear your comments on this episode and with family caregivers unite we're starting a new research project called qualitative research to find out what you our listeners think about important topics such as the one we've just been listening to so please email me to hear more or to get involved our next episode will be what family caregivers should know about sleep apnea please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.